Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, behavioral finance, why you need to understand it for yourself and your business. We will discuss how behavioral advice helps investors and advisors how to build and maintain strong relationships, and how to get started on that book. That's with our guest, Doug Lenick from Think to Perform. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets, Rusty. What are you watching for at the moment? We are recording this in mid-June, just to timestamp it. And we have talked about this the last few weeks on the podcast, but investor sentiment has finally moved from being persistently bearish and cautious to being much more optimistic. To be fair, the economy has been more resilient than people have thought, and technology stocks have caught the attention of many investors. Investor sentiment, though, is fascinating. It's Again, it's been deeply and consistent negative this year and last, and advisors have been doing a lot of hand-holding to keep investors invested and diversified. Now, we're at the most bullish levels in nearly two years and had the biggest one-week jump in sentiment in nearly three years. So now many investors are asking advisors, like, I want more technology stocks. So the trick for many advisors is to keep investors on their investment plans. And big shifts in sentiment often destabilize those plans. This week's guest is an expert in behavioral coaching for financial advisors. It'll be fascinating to get some of his takes on how to keep investors balanced and on plan. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's bring him in. Doug Lenick is the CEO and co-founder of Think to Perform in Minneapolis. Doug, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Yeah. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Rusty. I'm excited to be with you guys. Famous people yeah, like yourselves you. I get to be part of. Oh, you know it. <laughs> uh, right. You're the famous person. What you talking about? So, <laughs> sure. All right. To get this show get rolling, of course, our initiation for everybody is we need a walk-up song that we can imagine we can hear in the background. So what is Doug Lennox walk-up song for this podcast? (laughs) Actually, two songs came to mind when I thought of this. One that's real for me, which is Johnny Nash's song, I Can See Clearly Now. And there's a personal history with why that song is real to me. The other, I don't know the lyrics to. I do know the words to, I can see clearly now. The other one is Start Me Up. You know, so I like start me up. I just like the concept of start me up, you know, so and I have seen him in concert and he's really good. So Mick Jagger, but Johnny Nash, I can see clearly now because that happened at the time. I'm quite a bit older than both of you. And I was in that last group of people between my sophomore year in college and my junior year in college, student deferments ended and I was scheduled to be drafted. Johnny Nash came out with his song and the draft ended literally on my birthday, June 30th, 2021. I would have been drafted in July or August, uh, not 2021, of 1971. 72 in that time frame. So I would have turned 21 years old 
1973, and that's when it all ended, and Johnny Nash's song came out then. So that's my song. I like it. I can see clearly now. And there's a great line in there, all of the obstacles kind of get out of my way. So once I didn't have to go to draft, I was able to start my career as a financial advisor. And that got me really early on into understanding the role that emotions play in my life as an advisor and in my clients' lives as investors. That's great. Two quick comments. So first of all, we're taking both those songs for our playlist. You know, I've been saying this eight hours and we might be almost closer to nine hours. But the second thing, and this is the important thing, since you did sing a little bit of Start Me Up, I think the podcasts that are most popular is when our guests do sing a bit of their walk-up songs. So nicely done. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Yeah. All right. Well, Doug, let's talk about your background a little bit. You've had a long and really impressive career. You started out, as you mentioned, as a financial advisor that was back in 1974 at IDS Financial Advisors in Minneapolis. And then you ultimately became senior vice president at IDS. Um, Then you went on to American Express. You worked your way up to senior advisor to the CEO. You held that position again at Ameriprise. Today, you're the co-founder of Think to Perform, and you work with clients all around the world. So tell us more about your career, some of those highlights, and what's been most rewarding for you? Well, my fascination has always been human behavior. I've always been interested in the answer to two questions. One question is, why do people do what they do? And, And the other question is, could they be, could I really be who I would ideally like to be more often? And then when I narrow that down into financial services and and investing, I ask the question, why do people do what they do with their money? And then the second question, is it possible one could be a better decision maker with and about money? And the answer to the second question in both cases is yes, I could be my ideal self more often as a human being, and I could be a better investor. And so I've had that fascination literally since I was a little boy. You know, I've had the good fortune of knowing Richard Leiter, who's famous for his work in the power of purpose and so on. And he took me through the purpose work long, long, long ago. And and I identified a purpose statement which I've lived ever since. And that takes me back to my 20s. I'll be 71 the end of this month. My purpose is to help myself and others achieve our highest and greatest potential. And so I've built a career around helping other people achieve their highest and greatest potential. Believe it or not, they actually pay people like me to help people become the best they can be. And so I'm not especially good at anything, but I am good at helping people decide to be the best they can be. I'm good at that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I want to ask you about Think to Perform, and a lot about it really is in the name. So you provide coaching, consulting, business development to people and organizations that, as you said, help them make better decisions. So do I have that just sort of description of Think to Perform right? And just tell us more about the company. Yeah. I mean, basically, I'm a very vision, mission, values kind of guy. And our company, our vision is the short version is to enhance the world. The long version is to enhance the world through improving the decision making and performance of the individuals and organizations we touch. So that's a longer statement. Everybody in the company has to know the first part. We're here to enhance the world. 
our mission is really simple. We want to make a positive difference every day. So this is a seven day a week assignment. So we don't say we're going to do mission work five days a week. And then on the weekends, we're going to quit doing positive things. So it's make a positive difference every day. And then our values are people, integrity, growth, excellence. So we use our values to help guide our decisions and our behaviors. And we are aiming to enhance the world in everything that we do. And that's why we created the company. And we did so recognizing that the world has an opportunity. The name Think to Perform, we really recognize the power of thought, the power of thought. Human has the power of thought. The, the mind has the authority to override the brain. And thought is within the mind. And it happens within the instrument, the brain. So we do a lot of work studying the brain, which is the physical instrument, and studying the mind, which is the musician that plays the instrument. So that's probably the simplest way I can describe the difference between the brain and the mind. And what we try to help people understand is their mind has the authority to override the brain's desire to repeat behavior so that we can help otherwise smart people who are starting to do dumb things with their money actually go ahead and access how smart they are, even in the presence of competing and difficult to deal with emotions. So Doug, so behavioral finance has become very important to many successful financial advisor practices. So this question here, you've answered it with many books, but this hypothetical, let's say you're on an elevator and you got to make an elevator pitch and somebody says, how does behavioral advice help investors and advisors? What is your short answer for that? Again, I know you've written many books answering this. Well, the short answer to that is it helps people make rational, smart, responsible, values-based decisions with their money and their life in the presence of competing and difficult to deal with emotions. You know, the reality is human beings are emotional beings. And as such, we have to recognize the role emotions play in our lives. And for many people, they emote. We want people to learn to e-think mote. So we create a new word. So E, feel it, moat, do it, E, motion. And oftentimes the E leads to a less than optimal decision, especially when it comes to money. So I'll give you an example. We talk about emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is real. We start there. Emotional intelligence is not cognitive. Emotional intelligence sacrifices accuracy for speed. So it is very, very fast and it's frequently wrong. And when it comes to money, our emotional intelligence cannot tell the difference between a bear market and a bear in the woods. Keep in mind, our emotional intelligence is real and it is not cognitive. So when I feel fear, which bears tend to stimulate in people. You know, so if you encounter a bear in the North Woods, 
it's highly likely you will be afraid. In fact, I would be stunned if you could meet a bear in the wild and not achieve fear. <laughs> Similarly, people who experience a bear market often achieve fear. We're a high achieving humanity. We achieve fear. Fear stimulates in many people a response. We feel fear. Our brain is wired to help us avoid danger and to help us pursue opportunity. The wiring is triggered by the emotions we experience as stimulated by some outside event. So something happens outside of myself. I see a bear in the woods. I see a bear market. So that's happening out here. Those bears might scare me. My emotional intelligence doesn't want me to die thinking about it. It wants me to emote. You're scared. You might be in danger. It's a good idea to either fight or flee. So the fight or flight syndrome is a biological response to high intensity emotion like fear or anger. Should I be fighting? Should I be running? And literally what's happening in the brain is the brain is secreting chemicals biologically designed to restrict cognitive thought. So you may have heard someone once say, I was so angry, I was so scared, or I was so excited. Could have been the other. Like uh, Greenspan said, I was so exuberant. I was so exuberant, I became irrational. Remember when he talked about irrational exuberance? That's the emotion, and that's the amygdala hijacking the cognitive brain. And then we emote, and we run from the bear, if you run from the bear in the woods, you're risking, literally, you're going to lose your life because the bear is faster than you. It's an irrational response. If you run from the bear market, you're going to lose your money. That's the deal. And so what we try to do is help prepare people to e-think motion. Recognize fear. Recognize your decision-making capabilities are immediately compromised. So we have this tool we call the four R's. The first one is recognize, and that's what we're just talking about. And then we move from there. So this is a nice segue into my next question. I wanted to ask you, and think to perform has a program called the Behavioral Finance Advice Program. Tell us more about that. Well, Behavioral Financial Advice, we launched this program back in the mid 2000s. So in my head, by the way, you know, one of my mentors now deceased and a guy that I was blessed to know was Stephen R. Covey has endorsed our most recent book. But Stephen R. Covey would talk about all of these things that you create things twice, once in your mind and once in reality. Mentally, I created behavioral financial advice back in the late 80s, early 90s. But in reality, we didn't really create it until the mid 2000s. And basically what I was doing was trying to answer the question, two questions. Why do investments work and investors not? And what can you do about it? Why do investments work better than investors? And I discovered the answer to that is investments aren't influenced by emotions, but investors are. So behavioral financial advice says, if I'm going to win at the investment game, 
it's a two-sided coin. I have to win both sides. One side is kind of the technical, fundamental planning side. The other side is the behavioral side. I've done speeches down in Las Vegas where they've asked me to come down and speak about what do blackjack and investing have in common. And they have a lot in common. If you don't play well, strategically, and bet well, you lose. And so you have to do both sides of that. And that means you have to take into consideration the fundamental reality of what cards are left in the deck and the emotions that are running through your head. When is it good to raise my bet? When is it good to lower it and be able to handle those emotions? Now, I quit playing, but I will say that I left Las Vegas nine times in a row ahead. Winning is hard and it is stressful, but I I play to win. I don't play to lose. So I quit playing because it's I got bored by it, but I just wanted to prove that you could win. But the way you win is the behavioral victory. You win behaving better. That's how you win. And that's how you win in investing also. All right. Well, Doug, there is a credential offered for advisors interested in behavioral finance, the BFA, Behavioral Financial Advisor. Can you tell us what you think of that credential and is it worth it for advisors to pursue if they're interested in it? Well, Robin, I would say this. Not only is it worth it, I think it's central. I think that on one side of your credential, you should be a CFA or a CFP or both. And on the other side, you should be behavioral. You got to have both. Now, CFA now, and I know, Rusty, I think you're a CFA, and I think you're a BFA also, by that the way. That is correct, yep. <laughs> and, and I am a CFP BFA. Those are my only two designations. I'm not smart enough to be a CFA, but I recognize that the CFA is incorporating behavioral work in their credential more so now than ever before. And Markowitz himself, when he talked about modern portfolio theory, and I paraphrase, but some years after the theory was essentially used by everybody and simultaneously recognized as being incomplete, his comment is, you know, after all, it was just a theory. <laughs> you know, I mean, you guys have built a whole industry as if the theory was real. And the theory says, and you know this, Rusty and Robin, you guys know this, the theory says investors will make rational decisions start there. That's not true. So we already can start with, okay, what's wrong so far? That part. They will make rational decisions without bias. <laughs> That's interesting. That's not true. And so they're going to make these rational decisions without bias, with some intellectual understanding of the trade-off between risk and reward. And they'll look at a parabola and they'll say, here's a parabola, and there's risk, there's reward. Where would you like your dot to be? You know, so you get to pick, you know, based on how much risk you're willing to take, what your reward would be. And so the industry measures things like risk tolerance. The issue isn't risk tolerance. The issue is loss tolerance. Everybody's totally comfortable. I'm comfortable taking risks, provided they work. What I'm not comfortable with is loss. So will I take a risk? Sure, I'll risk. You know, I don't drink anymore, but I used to risk drinking and driving. I thought I would arrive safely. 
I was not prepared to lose my life, my arm, or anything. I don't even want to lose my ink pen. I've got a very nice Tiffany ink pen, and and I don't want to lose it. Yeah. Let alone a hundred thousand dollars or a million or whatever. Yeah. I've had a couple of those million dollar loss days. I mentioned to my wife we've had a good and a bad day here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. So. Changing gears a little bit. So if I counted correctly, you have now written 18 books. Is that right? Is it 18? Did I count it correctly? Well, actually, I've written really written and published seven books. And there are 11 books that have been kind of pirated and or written as if they were written by me. Oh, fascinating. So some of the books that say by Douglas Lennox, they actually, I, I didn't write them. I just told Kay May yesterday, because she didn't realize it either. She said, I didn't realize you wrote 18 books. I said, well, most of those aren't. And so she went online and she said, should I buy some of them? I said, yeah, you know, buy a couple. I wonder who gets the money. It's not me. Uh, but I, <laughs> I have written seven that are real books that are mine. Yeah, and those seven are like, this might be totally different answers, but which one was the most popular and which one were you the most satisfied with? The most popular book has been by far Moral Intelligence. And between Moral Intelligence and Moral Intelligence 2.0, you know, it's been published in 13 languages. It's sold, you know, six-figure sales across the world. So we're well into excess of 100,000 books. And so that's been a very good one. I will say, though, my most satisfying book was my very first one, which I wrote, I started writing in 1976. I was 24 years old. That was the year my son was born. I didn't publish it until 1984. It was called The Simple Genius You. And that was satisfying just because it got me going. And it made me realize I could write a book. And interestingly, a lot of what I wrote about when I was in my 20s, I now have scientific evidence was correct. But at the time, I'm mostly a philosopher. You know, I'm, you know, like, I'm not like Adam Smith exactly, but a lot of people think Adam Smith is an economist. You know, he was a Scottish moral philosopher. He's not an economist. I'm not an economist either. I'm a philosopher. But I can't tell anybody that and ask them to pay me. So <laughs> I took on different titles and so that people thought I was something else. That's smart. But I'm just a philosopher. <laughs> well, in our show notes, we'll have links to your books, including those 11 you really didn't write. So we'll see who makes some money on that. <laughs> but I will say this for your audience, the books that I really think are probably some of the most important work that I've done is in financial intelligence and then leveraging your financial intelligence. Financial intelligence is one of the two books that I am the sole author of, although I did get collaborative support. But leveraging your financial intelligence, I co-authored with one of my colleagues here. And my most recent book, I co-authored with one of my colleagues, Ryan Goulart co-authored Leveraging Your Financial Intelligence with me. And then Chuck Wachendorf is my co-author of Don't Wait for Somebody Else to Fix It. That's the most recent book. Both of those were published by Wiley. 
And I really feel those are important because, especially leveraging your financial intelligence, the subtitle, at the intersection of money, health, and happiness. Because in the simple genius you, at age 24, I was already saying the common pursuit all humans, sane humans have, is we all want to be happy with ourselves. We want to live a happy life. And what I have found is that through leveraging our financial intelligence, we create an intersection where our money, our health, and our happiness all come together. And that's so exciting. And so I think that's some of the most important work I've done, which is why I was so excited to be invited onto your program, because I know that's what you guys do. Awesome. Well, speaking of having a happy life, you often write about the importance of building and maintaining strong relationships. So what advice would you give to people seeking to improve their interpersonal connections and create meaningful relationships? Well, borrowing from my good friend, deceased Stephen Covey, I would say, seek first to understand. In our book, Don't Wait for Someone Else to Fix It, in my previous work, I looked at empathy and compassion. And I think of empathy as an emotional competence. And I think of compassion as a moral principle. And when I put them together, I think of compassion as empathy in action. And so in relationships, the critical part of the relationship is to come to the relationship with curiosity about the other person. Seek to understand the other person is Covey's habit. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. Empathy is about me being understanding. But I can be understanding without doing anything. Hence the title, Don't Wait for Someone Else to Fix It, requires more than empathy. It requires compassion. Compassion is empathy in action. And so as a compassionate person, I write the book because I really actively, I recognize, I care, that smart people are doing dumb things with their money. I'm recognizing that good people are making financial mistakes for emotional reasons. And I'm saying, I care about that, and I want to do something about it. That's the compassion. And so I want to give people the tools that can help them close the gap between their investment performance and their performance. And if you look at the Delbar data, which I'm sure you guys do, every year the quantitative analysis of investor behavior reminds us of the truth. And the truth is investments work better than investors. And what I talk about is behavioral financial advice prepares people for this truth, uncertainty. There is a certainty to uncertainty. And in my judgment, advisors on their best days, when I am practicing and I am currently still a CFP and a BFA, but I do not practice, 
But on my best day, what I did was I helped people make smart, responsible, values-based decisions within the presence of difficult-to-deal-with-emotions. That's what the game is about, and that's why it is so important. To me, it is everything. If you want to understand your current condition in any way, look into your past behavior. So if you want to know your current financial condition, look into your past behavior. You behave your way exactly into the situation you're in now. If you would like to predict your future, look into your present behavior. And if your future prediction therefore doesn't look good, then the solution is a behavioral solution. You change in the present. You change your behavior. The hard part is behavioral change because the brain is wired to repeat behavior. Most of what I do, I do because I did. Most of what, Robin, you do, you do because you did. Same for you, Rusty. Same for all of our listeners. We do most of what we do because we did most of what we do. Again and again and again. And those behaviors, if they're constructive, will help us make those smart decisions. But for many people who have not learned how to e-think motion, if they haven't learned how to do that, they will continue to repeat buying high, selling low. They'll buy into the emotion, they'll sell into the emotion over and over and over again. And Morgan Housel and your guy, <laughs> you guys got your old guys. Yeah, yeah, he's great. You know, and I talked to him recently and Dan and I, you know, are philosophically in sync. I know where I'm in sync with you. You and I hadn't met before today, but I knew before we got on that we're on the same wavelength. You know, we're fortunate. The world is fortunate that they have you broadcasting. We just need more people should be required viewing, required listening. Let's ground this with some sort of practical examples If people want to walk away from this conversation, knowing, you know, here are some steps I can take today. Here are some changes I can make today in terms of how do we cultivate a healthy relationship with money and achieve that financial well-being that we're looking for while also maintaining a sense of purpose and integrity? Great question. And I'm going to give everybody one thing first. You know, that movie City Slicker where they said there's one thing and they never got to it. This is it. So this is the end of City Slicker. Actually, I'm going to give you two things. But the one thing, you know, there is a first thing. There is a first domino. The first thing that I would encourage everyone to do, and they may think they already do this, and I would suggest they might be overestimating themselves. I would say make paying attention to yourself a habit. Make paying attention to yourself a habit. Practice makes permanent. The way the brain works is what we repeatedly think, what we repeatedly do gets wired into the habit center of the brain. It's called the basal ganglia for those who care. So we have this habit center and most of what we do is stored in there. And we think and repeat, think, repeat, behave, repeat, behave, repeat, and on and on and on. 
one of the things that we haven't made a habit is paying attention to ourselves. So here's the practice. Freeze. All right. We just froze. In the moment I said freeze, I will ask you these three questions. Actually four, but the three that pay attention to yourself. Question one, what were you thinking? When I said freeze, what were you thinking about Rusty and Robin? Well, I don't know. There's no wrong answer. Whatever you were thinking about is what you were thinking about. I was honestly thinking about I needed to add a link to the one thing from City Slickers in the show notes. <laughs> okay. Robin? Well, I was looking out the window and there was a goldfinch on my window screen. So. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. No, no, this is important. This is really critical. Emotionally, how were you feeling, Robin and Russ? Good. Happy because the goldfinch was really cute. Okay. <laughs> I was excited that I was going to add a link to City Slickers in the show notes. <laughs> so, but how are you feeling emotionally? I was feeling good. Yeah. You're feeling comfortable, relaxed, you know, and we call this linguistic labeling. I'll actually share with you something. This will be a little bit of a, I got this sitting right here. I, I always have it within arm's length and you're welcome to get one of these from me or a bunch of them. These are emotion cards, literally. Mm -hmm. And your listeners can't see these cards, but you can see them. They're emotion cards. These are words, like how am I feeling right now? Right now, I'm feeling, I'm a little playful right now, so I'm feeling somewhat clever. I'm feeling a little impish, actually, right now. <laughs> you know, and here's the deal. The more precise you can get at labeling your emotion, the more control over your emotions you will have. Because as you think about how you're feeling, you have to engage your cognitive brain. So you are now beginning to e-think motion. So when we play the freeze game, three questions. What are you thinking? How are you feeling emotionally? And what are you doing physically? And there is no nothing. There is no nothing. Now, most people don't pay attention to themselves very well. Example, I'll ask you, Robin, have you ever been in a conversation with a guy? So not Rusty, some other guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you're talking and the guy is nodding and bobbing and weaving, nodding and smiling. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it occurs to you, he's not at all listening to me. <laughs> No, that never happens with my husband. <laughs> no. And as a speaker, Rusty, I'll ask you this. Have you ever talked with somebody and the, and you're doing the guy thing, which is guys, when we pretend to listen, men typically nod and smile. Oh, you just wanted me to nod and smile right now. So I don't want to nod and smile. <laughs> so then an unusual look comes over Robin's face. And I think, hmm. My nod and my smile were probably inappropriate for whatever it was Robin said. <laughs> I wonder what she said. Moreover, I wonder when I quit listening. I don't really know. So we don't often know. Our minds wander. How about this? Have you ever read a book or an article? You get to the end of a chapter and you go, what the heck did I just read? Hmm. Have you ever done that? Yep. For Think sure. of that. That's you reading to yourself. And not paying attention. So I submit this to you. If any of your listeners 
begins to practice the freeze game today, multiple times every day, paying attention to themselves will become a habit and they will begin to change what they think and they will begin to change what they do to be more aligned with my second question, which is what are your most important values? Mine happen to be family, happiness, wisdom, integrity, service, and health. We take people through an exercise. We get them down to five. I just gave you six, but it's my game. You can have six. You can have five. The trick is to have a memory and to put verbs in front of them. Love your family. Be happy. Seek wisdom. Behave with integrity. Do something of service for somebody else today and make a healthy choice. Now, I use water as a reminder So I go through that values exercise a minimum, a minimum of 20 times a day, every day. So I'll demonstrate. When I drink water, I need a little right now. (laughs) Hopefully our listeners can hear Uh, I know. The sound effects were authentic. (laughs) Yeah. In the time it took me to drink that water, here's what went through my head. Love your family. Be happy. Seek wisdom. Behave with integrity. Do something of service for somebody else today and make healthy choices. And the last thing I do is I set that bottle down and I smile to myself and I say, you made one just now because water represents a healthy choice. Now, I also will drink some caffeine. So I've got my unhealthy choice, but I'm not Mm -hmm. confusing myself. (laughs) I know which one's which. But if people do those two things, it'll change their lives. Those are both very practical, Robin. And remarkably enough, once you engage, when you do values reflection, you will make better decisions of every kind, including with your money. You'll eat better. You'll invest better. You'll spend better. You'll sleep better. You'll make better decisions. Because you will be deciding what to think. Most people do not exercise the very simple authority all of us have been given by our, by whomever, our creator or whomever. All of us have the authority to decide what to think. The majority of people don't exercise the authority. Behavioral financial advice says, take charge of your thoughts and you'll take charge of your money. All right. Well, as Rusty mentioned, we talked about you have written a lot of books. And that first one was really satisfying to you, as you said, getting to that feeling of being able to do it. So tell us what advice you would give to aspiring writers or financial advisors looking to write a book, anyone who wants to share their knowledge, experiences and insights with that broader audience. That's a good question, Robin. And here's one of the things that I was advised, and it's really helpful to me. A couple things I would say. One is remember that on a good day, motivation goes away, and on a bad day, it never shows up. So do not wait for being motivated. Schedule writing time and write. Hmm. Schedule writing time and write. Yeah. And write whatever comes to mind. If you can't think of something, put your pen on the piece of paper and start writing 
there will be words, then start reading what you wrote. You will be surprised what you can write. I would suggest that. And then I would also suggest give up wanting to be perfect. One of the things that I've learned as an author and as a human being, and it's true as a human being and therefore applies to an author, is progress, not perfection, is what we seek. Perfection will never happen. When I first started writing, I could not finish anything because it was never good enough. Never, ever. Every time I read it, it was not good enough. And so I got over saying I had to write a great book. And I said, I just got to write a book. (laughs) I got to get done. And then out of that, it starts to unfold. And I'm very proud of my most recent book because it's really 50 years in the making. All the things that were in all the books, simple genius, how to get what you want, remain true to yourself, moral intelligence, moral intelligence 2.0, financial intelligence, leveraging your financial intelligence. All of that stuff has informed the new book. And when I wrote with Chuck, having a new co-author brought new fresh thinking along with it. And so keep your head open. Remember, knowing is the enemy of learning. If you want to be a writer, don't think you know everything because you surely do not. (laughs) But that doesn't mean you don't have something worthy of sharing that can help the world advance. Think about the difference you can make if someone reads your thoughts. That's great advice. All right, Doug. So let's turn to some of the questions we like to ask all of our guests at the show now. And the first is a relatively new one. And it is, do you have a take on how artificial intelligence might impact the markets, investing, and our profession? How's it going to impact financial advisors? Well, first of all, I think artificial intelligence is going to contribute to advisors providing high quality advice. I mean, artificial intelligence will be able to perform cognitive and technical functions better than humans. What artificial intelligence cannot do better than humans is perform moral and emotionally competent tasks and behaviors. So in my judgment, the human intelligence, you know, if you take Dan Heath's work on upstream, Mm -hmm. take the concept of upstream, human intelligence has to inform artificial intelligence upstream because the human is blessed with a conscience. The machine is not. Now, the machine can be programmed to reflect what I believe. So I can create a machine that reflects my biases. So I can create a Frankenstein or I can create a Give me somebody better than Frankenstein, uh, Mother <laughs> Teresa. So, I, you know, I mean, I can create in my machine. That machine won't have my emotions, but it'll be able to behave like it. So like C-3PO and R2-D2, those guys are cute, but they really are machines. Yep, <laughs> I mean, yep. And as machines, they really don't have a conscience. And they really don't have emotions. And I believe that artificial intelligence is going to change the game. I think the next wave up is what's called quantum, 
So AI is going to be obliterated by quantum within the next couple of years. It's not going to take long. And quantum is like you take 100 supercomputers, quantum will be able to do what 100 supercomputers can do. Quantum will be able to do all of that when one machine in considerably less time than 100 computers. And we're talking about supercomputing is already really fast. So this will eventually lead, you know, to time travel. We'll be able to get from here to there before we left. Yeah. I mean, so it's going to be amazing. So and market cap is going to go crazy. So what's going to happen is the big companies of today are going to get wiped out by market cap. Companies that don't exist today will be in the Fortune 50 within five years. Wow. You know, that is both simultaneously super exciting and super scary. I mean, it's change is accelerating. So, wow. I guess the next question might have an answer based off what you just said. And this is another question we ask all of our guests. And that is, what is currently your favorite investment idea? And the answers on this have ranged from being very specific to very philosophical. What is your favorite investment idea? My current favorite investment idea remains the smart money philosophy. And the smart money philosophy simply says, Doug, prepare yourself for the truth. The truth is uncertainty. So position yourself such that whenever you or any of your family needs money, there's a smart place to get it. So my current position is be prepared to die, be prepared to live, be prepared to be sick, be prepared to be healthy, be prepared for the market to go up, be prepared for the market to go down. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. pretty much it. And so all I've done is prepare myself for everything. And so there's nothing that can happen today that financially we're not ready for. Yeah, that's extremely wise. I like it. All right, next question is, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level for our work and for our families. So how do you maintain your energy, both mentally and physically, to ensure you're performing at a high level, both professionally and personally? You know, energy is everything. You know, the guys that I got to know, Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz, who wrote the book, The Power of Full Engagement, and the article, The Making of a Corporate Athlete. You've probably seen some of their work. And Jim continues, and they've no longer worked together. But one of the things they talked about is managing energy, not time. What I believe is it's a managing energy and time is really critical. And one of the things that I find is that for me, I have one thing, this will sound really silly, but one thing I have to do every day, which is the first domino that knocks over everything else. If every day, if I complete today with having done more than 10,000 steps, mm -hmm. today will have been a high energy day and tomorrow will be two. So I am fine. Like this week, yesterday, I had to get up yesterday morning at three o'clock in the morning Pacific time to catch a flight at 6.10 Pacific time so that I could get to my granddaughter's two-year-old Father's Day party at her preschool in the afternoon. And I worked last night until nine o'clock. I had meetings until nine. And my first meeting this morning 
was at seven o'clock. I had to get up again this morning at five o'clock. And I have great energy. I was looking forward to today. Today is a long day. I'm a principal owner of a theater called the Chanhassen Dinner Theaters, and we're opening Jersey Boys tonight. And so I'm going to see Jersey Boys. So today I will have gotten up at five and I will go to bed at midnight and I will be fine because I will get my 10,000 steps. When I get my 10,000 steps, I also drink better. I sleep better. I do everything better. So it all starts with 10,000 steps for me. Everybody else has their own first domino. Figure yours out. Wow, you know what? There was so much to unpack in that answer. But just last night, I was reading a book called Built to Move. It just came out by somebody named Kelly Starrett. And one of the things he was talking about was the 10,000 steps. Now, even though I just read it last night, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like the average American walks less than 5,000 steps a day. But if you walk 8,000 steps a day, not only do you sleep better and eat better, but your chances of living longer go up. It was some crazy amount. And then if you hit 10,000, it improves even more. And if you hit 12,000, you even get a significant jump up from 10,000. It was pretty powerful stuff. And you just said it. This is just hours after I read it. It's what I read before I went to sleep last night. That's great. Well, and it's interesting because I'll actually will share with you. This is just for funsies. In the last year, I have averaged 11,697 steps. My lowest month, my lowest month, let's see if I can see it, is 11,260 steps. I will turn 71 at the end of this month. In the last 12 months, I have been under 10,000 steps exactly two days, counting holidays, birthdays, international travel. It doesn't matter. I will get 10,000 steps. If I have to walk around an airport, I don't care. I will get 10,000 steps. Wow. I, you know, I'm so <laughs> glad you brought those stats because I'm actually looking at my stats and I'm at 12,400 for the year this year. I was at 15,000 last year and 13,500 the year before that. This week, however, I'm in a walking boot and crutches. So I had to use a sit down elliptical and use my arms to try to get my steps this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. That's great. I love it. Yeah. All right. So here's another one. If you think back on your career and all of the people who have influenced you and helped you get to where you are, tell us who are those people that you're professionally thankful for? Well, the guy that taught me Witty Whiffy, his name is Roy Gear. He co-authored one of my books with me. He was hugely influential. He taught me the goal achievement tool. What do you want for yourself? Woody Wiffy, W-D-Y-W-F-Y. It was the end of 1974 when I met him. I was 22 years old and he was 47 at the time. And he passed away a couple years ago, but he taught me a couple of things. He said to me this, I'm 22 years old and I'm sitting in this room and he's the speaker. And he said, getting what one wants for oneself is a rightfully selfish process, provided it's in alignment with principles and values. That was a big breakthrough Mm -hmm. for me. And then he said, getting what one wants for oneself is simple, but not easy. 
that was really important for me to recognize very early in my career that simple and easy are not synonyms. And then he said, there are five profoundly simple steps, five profoundly simple, hard steps. <laughs> they're simple, but they're hard. The beauty of the simplicity is it sorts it out and there's nowhere to hide. People like complexity because I can hide behind it. The beauty of profound simplicity, there's three levels of understanding, simplistic, complex, profoundly simple. And I figured out early in life, because of Roy and others, if I can't achieve profound simplicity, I won't be useful to very many people, including myself. So profound simplicity is simplicity on the other side of complexity. And that was important. My co-author, Fred Keel, who also recently, I spoke at his memorial service. He was considered the grandfather of executive coaching. He was the K in KRW International. When I became a senior executive at American Express, I was 36 years old. I didn't have a college degree. They hired KRW because they said, we've got this guy who's undereducated, but he seems to be good at some stuff. You're his coach. And so he became my coach. And what he did was mostly coach a lot of colleagues of mine. Most of my colleagues, of course, were Ivy League MBA guys. I was an, a flunky from Minnesota. <laughs> and, and so I hadn't even graduated. So he became my coach. But then we discovered early on what he taught people as a coach, is really smart people, that being smart isn't good enough. What I realized is because I didn't have all the credentials, I didn't get to play, I have a better degree than you, card. I don't have a degree. So I don't have an MBA from pick your school. I don't have it. All I got is what I know how to do. And what he discovered because he asked me, when he interviewed me first time, he says, what are some adjectives that describe you? And I said, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. He said, wow, sounds like you know that. I said, well, that's the scout law. I'm an old Eagle Scout, and most of that's true about me. I am trustworthy, I, you know, but I'm not all those things. I'm not terribly reverent, but nonetheless. Yeah. Those guys were influences. And of course, my family. I grew up learning from my mom and my grandmother and my grandfather and all those people. I mean, I have so many, so many positive influences. It's too good a question. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I can't say everybody, but I will tell you it's a whole lot. And currently, probably the most influential person in my life is my wife, because she has helped me recover from being an alcoholic. Hmm. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been so much, so much on this interview already, which is useful to our listeners. But I guess one more question related to just getting more stuff to learn about. But what are you reading and listening to at the moment? Do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, right now, you know, one of the great books, and she's going to be at our conference. We have a conference every year, October 3rd and 4th. You should come to it. Yep. It's called Evolve. And Morgan Housel will be there again this year. He was there last year. He's great. But we also, Liz Fosling, who this is the book I really like right now. It's called Big Feelings. Mm -hmm. 
It's phenomenal. And Liz is a well-recognized illustrator, and it's called Big Feelings, and the subtitle is How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. Really outstanding book. There's several of them that I, I really like, and that's one of them. I like Helen Reese's book, Empathy, but those are a couple that that immediately come to mind. Oh, and one book that I just did a year-long book review again on Seven Habits, and currently I'm doing a book review with one of our clients on the book, The Goal, which is a fabulous book, by the way. It's a novel, but it really basically advances the theory of constraints. So interesting yeah. read. Wow. Oh, my gosh. My reading list keeps expanding here. Okay. Well, I have one more question before we kind of close the show, because you just teased me about it. Tell us more about the, did you say the Chanhassen Dinner Theater? Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking. Well, the Chanhassen Dinner Theater is the largest dinner theater in the country. We put together an investor group 14 years ago to buy the theater. The theater is a historical theater. It's in Chanhassen, Minnesota. And we employ 300 people. We're the largest restaurant in the state of Minnesota. And next Friday, a week from today, is June 23rd. There's going to be press night. And so that's the official opening. But we do live showings. We start tonight with the Jersey Boys. We just closed the prom, which I think was one of the most important shows we've ever done. And I'm really proud of having done it. We knew it was going to be a difficult show, but it was a great show. But that's the theater. And the concept is my approach to business is people, service, profitability, serve the people. The people will serve the client. The client will make the business profitable. So what we do is we focus on a great experience for our people so that they give a great experience for our customers so that our customers come back. One of the things that people hear me say a lot, Rusty, is the foundation for growth is retention. And retention is all about helping people experience what they want, something that is a great experience. Woody Whiffy, if people get what they want for themselves, they will stay with you. And so I've made a career of helping people get what they want for themselves. And so I've grown through retention. I've retained friends, clients, clients and businesses and, you know, whether they be individuals, organizations, whatever. All right. Well, Doug, thanks so much. This has been such a great conversation. I'm sure our listeners have got a lot from it. Tell us, how can they stay in touch with you and your team at think to perform Well, I do this all the time because... This is how I communicate best. So if somebody wants to actually reach me and say something to me, I'm going to give you my cell phone number. Text me. Call me. 612-747-0004. Now, finding me at think to perform is real easy. The name of the company is Think, the number two, the word perform thinktoperform.com. And our email address, the code is always our first initial last name at think to perform. So it would be D Lenick at thinktoperform.com. So you can reach us any way like that. You can go to our website, the values exercise. You can actually do an online exercise for free. It'll take you 10 minutes. You can go online right now. We'll have 
Thousands of people will do that exact exercise for free today or this week, not today, maybe today. But you can do it. It costs you nothing. And you'll actually be able to see what you care most about. I will tell you this, that just looking at it won't be enough. Having a conversation with an expert would really help you so that you could really explore why you picked what you picked. So when I talk about family, I could talk to you about why did I pick family and what does it mean to me? Why did I pick happiness? And what does it mean to me? And by the way, I will say this, happiness is a state of mind, not a state of affairs. Wow, Doug, this has been amazing. So many nuggets, so much wisdom, so much practical advice. I do have to tell you, I have another podcast I do on a monthly basis called Weighing the Risk. And part of my opening is always talking about the certainty of uncertainty, which comes from your work. So thank you so much for your time. And I really look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Robin. I insist on being invited back. (laughs) Yeah, right on. (laughs) We'll definitely make that happen. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, don't forget to subscribe if you like this episode. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations Podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. Opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.